and the train. So let me begin from the top. It's going to be very New York. Yeah, it is. It's going to be real bag of donuts over here. Mean Streets, comic book edition. <laughs> I just saw that again, by the way. Is it the cousin, Sylvia? Is that her name? Oh, yeah. She's amazing. Underrated. She's yeah, underrated. She's Harvey Keitel, amazing. My only complaint about the Irishman, as long as people said it was, there was not enough Keitel. Um, <laughs> what were we just talking about? I'm not sure, but here's another question for you. Okay. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor in chief at Steinway and Sons, and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the comic book artist and writer Sandy Jimenez. He writes illustrated stories about the South Bronx that began to see publication 30 years ago in World War III Illustrated Magazine. Jimenez is currently editing the climate change graphic novel anthology Let's Bet the Planet with Joyce Farmer. Hey Sandy, how you doing? I'm good, Ben. How are you today? I am okay. Sandy, you are a survivor of the coronavirus. You are someone I know who has actually had it. And I understood from you in our previous conversations that it has been a real drag. And if not everyone understands this already, this is an opportunity to say again, do not take this lightly. This is not the flu. This is not the flu plus tax. You had a rough go, but you are now back on your feet. Yeah, I, it, it really is not the flu. If there's one sort of thing I try to hammer home to people who sort of ask me about it and don't know anyone else who's been sick. I was fortunate. I didn't have the respiratory stuff, and it was still remarkably hellish. It's no secret how something like this can shut economies down, even if the mortality rate wasn't what it is. Or the co, you know, the comorbidity wasn't what it is because it just it shuts you down. I mean, I was sick starting on March fifteenth, and every day for about five days straight, two o'clock, I would get hit with fatigue that would just take me out of everything. And then I had like one day of respite where I thought I was through it, and it came back even harder. And as far as lingering effects, I mean, I've had weird. I want to say it's heart stuff. I'm not quite sure. You know, I've talked to my doctor and his 10 or 12 other patients who have had COVID have had similar symptoms. You know, for me, it feels it manifests at times as though someone's putting their finger on my chest and not removing it. I don't like the sound of that at all. I'm glad you made it through. Uh, I hope that these effects too will clear up over time. So I wish you the best with that. And I'm glad you're here talking with me tonight or this afternoon for you. Thanks. (laughs) So Sandy, you are a comic book artist. Is that the right term? Yes. Okay. I still stick by that. I mean, people throw the term graphic novelist around, things like that. I, you know, a comic book artist is what I grew up sort of aspiring to be. So I'm sticking with that title. And you also write. You're not just an illustrator for the comics of others, 
but you are the judge, jury, and executioner on your whole enterprise, right? Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, in that way, it's akin. I mean, people draw parallels between film and comics all the time. I do both. And I do do comics when I feel that I have to approach a narrative that I want complete control over. It is a wonderful medium that way. You just you, you can really create an experience for a reader in a way that few other media allow you to control, you know, from start to finish. Okay, so let's talk about that because that is wildly fascinating for me. It's also wildly terrifying because as a writer, just to sit down in front of the empty page is already tough. But if I had to be the writer and then <laughs> I had to draw pictures and figure out which dialogue is going on which panel and if I have a 16-page story where my acts fall and, and all that sort of thing, I'm getting stressed right now just, just brainstorming about it. So why don't you calm me down and talk to me about what do you attack first when you say, okay, I'm going to do this comic? What's job one? For me, I, I think like many artists, you know, I'm in a constant note-taking process. So there are things that become images, et cetera, et cetera, but... I kind of know or have an idea that I have something I can start with that's going to turn into a story when I have some, it's either a recollection or some idea about a series of events that holds together with a beginning and end, if not a beginning, middle and end, but also something that I can't forget. If it's something that's nagging me, that keeps sort of rising back to the forward part of my mind, I know that that's when I can begin writing. The writing process itself, as you know, is enough. There are times when I finish a script and I actually don't want to go further. <laughs> a comic book script for people who know the format isn't all that different from a theatrical play script or a TV script or a film script, except that it literally indicates what's on the page in terms of you're creating a page that's dictating what's going to be on another page. So it can be very mechanical in that sense. And that part of it can be very trying because you're really trying to hit certain notes. And I'm my own client, right? I'm going to end up drawing this. So I have to be very clear about what I'm setting out for myself. The more I leave to sort of chance and, and don't figure out beforehand, the more of a nightmare the, the drawing is going to be. And, and by nightmare of drawing, I mean the conceptualizing of images, you know, the mechanics aren't, aren't all that hard. Explain to me what conceptualization of images entails. When I write a script, it basically to, to sort of explain it just in, in, in plain talk and plain language, you indicate, you know, where a page begins, where a page ends, where the panels are, what's inside of every panel. Is a figure closer to the foreground? Is it someone in the background who's talking, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to pause for a sec. God, that one train's going to be the death of me. Sorry. Um, In terms of bringing a comic book script to life, you have, as I was mentioning, all the different elements where you 
basically bracket where a page begins and ends and all the things that happen in between the panels, any graphics. I don't use many sound effects graphics, but for those who do, all of that is indicated in that script. What I'll then do is literally rip those pages out and start sometimes physically cutting them apart and start sketching on them. From then I'll move to what are called thumbnails, which are very small. I mean, they're like smaller than the size of index cards per page to sort of lay out what the actual mix of the panels will be. My script may say something like four panels, but is that one small panel that's a thumbnail and then one large panel that's half a page and two smaller panels or any permutation thereof? Uh, in those thumbnails with very rudimentary geometrics, I'll lay out, you know, person standing here, et cetera, et cetera, according to the script. From there, I'll move to pencils. Uh, and that's generally the big leap. That's where the comic looks like a comic. And then you move to ink or whatever your final media is. In my case, I still work very much traditionally, so-called. You're computer-free throughout the process? I start writing on a computer because, uh, you know, it's great to write in a true... Because you can move things around virtually without pulling your hair out? Absolutely. Pinning everything to your wall? Well, yeah. I mean, you and I can remember the days of writing on a typewriter and typing the word twice and not being able to do anything about it. So just just for little things like that, just keeping the thing clean and, and, and good-looking, it's great. But yeah, you're right. You You can front load an editing process that's much more dynamic in a word processing program than if you do what, frankly, even a lot of my younger colleagues do today, which is they write freehand, you know, because they take their notes in freehand or, you know, maybe they're just scribbling into a notepad uh, software on their phones. But that doesn't allow you to edit, you know, with even something as basic as Microsoft Word for the purposes of moving things around. It's, it's just night and day. Uh, it allows me to do a lot and build a lot. And it also allows me to keep iterations of scripts, which is really important for me as I've grown older. Ultimately, I basically start on the computer and I end on the computer. I scan the stuff in. And what I do is I keep my dialogue and captions, any lettering, I keep that in a separate layer. And I use you know various fonts to achieve the dialogue you know that, that approximates sort of handwritten comic book writing. But that way I can edit my comic book, the same with the same ease, I do the Microsoft Word document that I started with. So in between, I'm you know, I'm Bill Gates on the outside and like in between, and like Da Vinci in the middle. <laughs> Let's back up even further. These stories that become comics, we all as creatives hate the query: Where do you get your ideas from? <laughs> but I guess here's a flowchart. Maybe do you read a lot of novels? Do you pull a lot from your own life and your own experience? Is there a time for ideas? Is there like a specific activity that seems to bring more ideas to you? Do you carry around a notebook all the time and are just constantly scribbling things down? How does it work? Well, I have to say your fatigue with regards to the where do your ideas come from question has served you well because that is the best way that question's ever been asked to me. Um, I do walk around as an obsessive note taker just because, you know, in terms of what I see that's influential to me or inspiring to me, I should say, that could be anything. You know, you could see an argument on the street or, you know, the sky looks a particular way or you hear something that could be jotted down in terms of notes, in terms of a sketch, who knows. In terms of where my ideas come from for stories, for me, it's a constant process of 
mining what's happened that day. And if something I can't forget keeps rising to the fore, that's generally the beginnings of a story, the idea for a story. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of the process of where it all comes from, I, I think not to back out away from the question or, or, or give some sort of, you know, glib answer, but ideas come from everywhere. I think that it's our job as artists to sort of sort the impulses and influences that matter from within and from without. It's like, you know, the old cliche that memory is really about forgetting, right? Because if you remembered everything, your brain would just turn to stone. It's really about sort of what you selectively take in. And I think, you know, for all artists, that's a very similar process. I don't think I'm very unique in in that uh, sense at all. I think all of us are going through a constant filtration process, you know, almost like fish underwater, sort of filtering nutrients and pushing out the stuff that's irrelevant out of the gills. With regards to my comics, I certainly look at everything that's happening, you know, in the industry around me. I look at mainstream stuff, so-called, you know, the superhero stuff I'm still a huge fan of. Um, So much of cinematic language was developed by that stuff, even though a lot of independent comic book artists and people working in the graphic novel idiom today tend to sort of cast a, an averse glance at the stuff that's happening in the, in the mainstream, the real popular stuff. A lot of our cinematic language for comics came out of that. So I look at that stuff too. Um, I don't know that I necessarily get my ideas from it. People are still not working in the types of narratives and doing the kinds of things that I do, not because I'm so bloody unique. It's just I'm coming from a very particular part of the world and a particular time that hasn't been written about much. And uh, frankly, if I saw the stories that were more similar to what I do, I would probably just read that stuff and not do them because they certainly are labor intensive. (laughs) Your latest piece is a story called God Bless the Americans, which is in World War III illustrated, issue number 51. Sandy, do you want to take us through that story? Sure, sure. To say that these are harrowing times in our country is probably the understatement and I don't, of the century, and I don't know that there's an adequate way to capture, to bottom line it for someone if someone were coming from another planet to give them some sort of context. Uh, so my story was really about trying to find some way to show the conversations that are happening between people right now across the political spectrum in a very day-to-day way that doesn't have the, not necessarily the overt ideological underpinnings of what people are wrestling with right now, but more of the personal stuff. And my story takes place in in a workshop setting, uh, in a workplace setting. And it's really about people sort of discovering their motivations for why they feel and why they believe in what they believe. I try to give everybody their sort of fair day in court, uh, which is, I think, my responsibility as a writer. That doesn't mean that I necessarily take on opposing political viewpoints, but I feel it's important to not clown and caricature people, uh, especially those that we don't agree with, which is a very, very difficult thing to do right now because the temperature is so hot and things are just so uncivil. And I felt that my comic book was a good space to do that, especially with regards to you you and I are daily social media users, as is just about everyone on the planet. And, you know, social media is doing exactly 
what it's supposed to do, which is elevate everyone's voice to the same volume. But when that happens, all you get is a lot of noise. And I, I used my story to sort of try and show a sort of boots on the ground, human to human way in which these disagreements are unraveling. And I guess if I had anything to sort of offer in terms of what my story was about was that as difficult as some of the conversations are that we're having right now, they need to be had. They're all that more necessary for all the pain that they bring. And, you know, without giving too much away, the story is about, you know, the pernicious specter of racism in our country and how it's in our culture and how it's frankly in our culture in dynamic and in not so obvious ways. And uh, ultimately, the story is about people sort of coming together and if not coming to an absolute understanding, coming to a place of civility with each other and, and doing a lot of listening. That's what I really felt my story had to be about. That was the thing that when I spoke earlier about how ideas come to me and how they are things that I can't forget or things that I can't stop thinking about, that was the thing that was on my mind so much the last you know, certainly the last four years since 2016, that there's just a lot of shouting and arguing going on. And we've all been in relationships. We know that winning an argument doesn't necessarily mean you're right. <laughs> and I wanted to tell a story that got away from a bit of that and, and got back to the, the temperature, if you will, that I, I wish things would return to. Well, that's an extremely eloquent synopsis. And I'm looking here at the PDF of the story and I think, to as a compliment to what you've just said, all these characters who are talking to each other, who come from various ethnic and cultural backgrounds, you've made them expressive without making them uh, cartoonish, let's say. <laughs> Which is interesting because I draw them in a very cartoony way. But I guess what I mean by that is that these aren't stereotypes of angry Latino and Asian and white and black guys talking to each other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought, first of all, there's enough of that shorthand right now. There seems to be this rush when things get this heated. The last time I remember it happening really acutely was 9-11 and the subsequent elections afterwards, where it's, you almost have people, certainly the punditry in, in our in our media, in our news cycles, you know, saying, well, you know, shut up, we have to move on and not talk about this anymore. It's like, no, that's, that's precisely what we have to do. We, we got to really slow down and listen to why people are saying exactly what they're saying or why they say they're feeling what they're feeling. And um, I think that that is something that is valuable, not just for the person listening, but for the person speaking. I think we've all had the experience of having to elaborate a position or, you know, some objection we have to something. And the more particular we get in our explanation, the more illuminating it is as, as to actually why we feel the way we feel. What part of it is driven by fear? What part of it is driven by anger? And what part of it is, is intellectually legitimate? Is there a therapeutic aspect for you of writing comics? Sometimes <laughs> is the answer. Sometimes there's a story I wrote, uh, I think about two cycles ago called Skid Poisoning that I, I, I can't read publicly because I, I break into tears. It's just too, there's just too many hurt feelings in it. 
that's a case of a story that I felt that I had to tell to sort of make sense of the events in it to myself more than anything else. But it didn't feel good doing it. Um, I don't like reading it. Uh, I, I like the fact that it's been received as well as it has. You know, critically, really nice things have been said about it. But it sounds like you also appreciate that it's done and you can now leave it. I mean, Seth Tabachman was one of my editors on that. Seth Tabachman's an incredible uh, a graphic novel uh, creator, comic book artist. He's one of the founders of World War III Illustrated, along with Peter Cooper. They started it way back in 1980 with uh, Christoph Kohlhofer. They were just out of school, I think, or maybe still in school. And they created this anthology that's really been a home for my work. But uh, Seth was my editor and my sort of key contact during the development of that skin poisoning story. And I, he'll tell you, I tried to back out of it so many times after I had written the script because the, the I'll pause for a moment. Seth Bachman was critical in getting that story done because I'm normally not so shy about difficult material, but that one was emotionally very sacrificial. I didn't know how deep the water was when I was writing the script, but once I'd finished it, I felt like I'd already done the comic. You know, that's the frustrating thing about mm. doing uh, comics. And, and unlike a film, when I'm dealing with a, a motion picture production, I can make people stand, you know, just show them a storyboard with a couple of stick figures and say, I want you stand closer, you back there, you jump up and down, whatever. But you have to literally create the world when you're doing a comic book. And James Romberger, who's another artist, who's been an old friend and really big influence on me over the years, fantastic artist. He said to me years ago, and I didn't understand what he meant, you know, but I, I get it now. He said that the better we do what we do as comic book artists, the better we are as draftsmen, the better we are as writers, the easier it looks to the audience, the easier it looks to the reader. And that has been a mounting bit of frustration for me over the years. Not that I want to be patted on the back and, you know, every time I do it, but it's, it's just kind of odd that, you know, we send these missives out into the world and people read them in an afternoon and never look at them again. That's a little rough, <laughs> but that's the job. Take me through a day in the life of you, the comic book artist, do you try to keep a specific, like, okay, it's writing time. This is the time where I apply ass to chair and write, or are things more flexible? Things are always going to intrude, but ever since I got out of college, I made myself a promise that if I was putting in eight hours at a job, I was going to put in eight hours at home. And for me as a comic book artist, when I'm in that mode, if I'm working towards something big, that generally means four hours writing, four hours drawing. Uh, once the script's done, you know, that becomes all drawing or it's all writing at the front, uh, however. 
but I try to keep to that somewhere between six to eight hours, you know, once I get home. Are those complementary activities like you're going to be drawing on the same thing that you're writing on or do you do you sort of switch it up? Not at the start. Um, but yeah, there is there's a lot of fusion that goes on because what will happen is when I'm doing the the roughs and the thumbnails I mentioned before where I'm laying out pages, you'll start to see an image and you'll go, oh, you know, this guy doesn't need to say who he is as he walks through the door. You can tell, you can see him. So, you know, let's get rid of that piece of dialogue. I'll go back to the script and basically excise it from the file. Maybe print out the page again so it's clean and it's off of my mind. But, you know, that back and forth will happen on some stories more than others. Lately, it's been happening less, which I hope is a testament to the fact that I think I'm more comfortable and maybe more at home with the process and not that I'm just, you know, getting lazy and not going back and making the changes I should. But um, yeah, certainly you have to be flexible that way. Not so much in terms of your time. I mean, I think that that's the thing. I try to tell this to, to people I've taught over the years and to colleagues even if you can only do a half hour a day, that's better than leaving it all for the weekend. I think that people overestimate what they can get done in a small period of time and underestimate what they can get done in a larger period of time. So they think like Saturday is just going to be this big day where I'm going to ramp up and do everything. And, you know, musicians will tell you, you know, it's you can't develop fluidity that way. You can't develop muscle memory and and just that part of your brain that becomes natural at doing the things you want to do, if you're saving it up for one day, it's better to make it part of your daily practice as a human, you know, the same way that you eat every number of hours or you exercise every number of hours or you sleep every number of hours. Your artistic practice should be part of that if you're calling yourself an artist. To give you an example, I think that people think like, I'm going to get this comic book done in a week. And it's like, you should be thinking about several comics across a year, not this one target at this one time. And then what will happen is they don't hit that one target and everything goes out the window. You can get a lot done if you start thinking sort of in quarters and years. And I think that that's scary for a lot of people because they're going, oh, my God, in two years, I'll have, you know, these things these X amount of things done and only that. And it's that's better than scrambling your brain and not getting any of it done, which a lot of people tend to do. They just tend to front load their schedules in this crazy way. And, you know, they underestimate. There's a real power to scheduling a project, getting it done, and then sort of, you know, bracketing and, and moving on and moving on. Sandy, you've indirectly given some great advice to other comic book artists out there and burgeoning comic book artists. Are there some mistakes that you've made, some potholes that you hit with your Chrysler that <laughs> that you'd like others to avoid? Oh, man, that is a great question. And I'm not even sure where to begin. I mean, I would say in sort of general career, I mean, I'm very happy with where my career is at in terms of you know, I mean, I've got about 300 pages in World War III Illustrated alone. So I've been pretty prolific and I've been able to create the work I want to create. So I don't have any misgivings there, but there's a lot of people who want to sort of work for Marvel or work for DC. You know, if that's what you want to do, I would say 
And, and this was not what I wanted to do. But if that's what people want to do, my best piece of advice would be to get close to the action, get an internship, get in there, uh, get close enough so that, you know, you're on the bench when something happens. Because the fact of the matter is the landscape has changed so much just in terms of the economy. You know, there was a time 25 years ago, you know, when I was still, you know, doing illustration here and there for Toy Biz and things like that, mainstream superhero stuff that wound up on box art for toys. There weren't as nearly as many people who could do what I can do now, you know, then as there are today. There are just that many more people with good draftsman skills, draftsmanship skills, but also just so many more people interested in this genre and in this thing we call comics in general. I mean, when I was in college at Cooper Union, you could not bring up the term illustration. You could not mention comic books. You know, it's a great institution. I would never put down a place that gave me a free education. And, you know, they made me a welder and that put food on the table for me for eight years. But I was not able to study what was most important to me while I was there. Uh, I basically had to study comic books as a satellite curriculum, along with uh, two friends, Javier Michalski and Ingar Westberg. We basically used to show each other our work across about a three-year period, you know. You were a peer group of three. Yeah, yeah. We were the, I, there were some other folks there, I mean, honestly, that were doing illustration, but it was couched in sort of fine art drawing and other things. If they ever wanted to put your work down, you know, if a sculpture teacher, if a painting teacher wanted to insult your work, they'd say that it was illustrative. So that kind of lets you know what the tone was. And, you know, this wasn't the dark ages. I mean, Art Spiegelman's mouse, I think, had already won a Pulitzer. So comic books were not unknown as, as a potentially great art form. They just simply were not respected during that period. So, you know, today... That's actually, in some ways, a bit of a challenge because there is such just a tidal wave of talent, you know, coming out of the schools. So if you want to work for one of those places, you need to get close to the action. I think that if there's anything I would do differently is that I would have gotten representation much earlier in my career uh, as an illustrator, as an artist. The one thing I think as well, and going back to that thing about time, Artists are horrible salespeople for the most part. I've met very few artists who are good business people, good salespeople, good self-promoters. Uh, it's good to have someone in your corner doing that, sort of looking at those opportunities and helping you. You know, your, your career has to have a narrative as well. For me, it was doing these comic books about the South Bronx, about New York City, about America from my very subjective lens and while I did pursue opportunities to do it elsewhere, you know, I, I pitched to heavy metal in the late 80s. And, you know, it just wasn't what they were interested in. But that didn't mean that I was going to stop being interested in it. So what mistakes and pitfalls, you know, whatever icebergs I've hit were probably necessary for me to be where I'm at right now. So I don't have any, I don't have any big ones other than that. I think... In terms of a cautionary tale, I would tell people to decide on the type of career that they want very early. That Again, that seems like a daunting thing and people feel like that's somehow restrictive and, and sort of slamming the door on their future. 
But, you know, we all do that all the time. You know, we decided to get where we are by making a series of decisions, by focusing on a goal or focusing on a destination and getting there. And art, while it may be this very dynamic, creative process, requires no less clarity. You know, you have to decide, you know, am I going to be the guy who wants to draw Spider-Man every month? That's a very specific job. That's a very specific job with very specific skills with a very specific kind of life. I love Spider-Man. I still love reading it. I don't necessarily want to draw it for more than an issue. And they don't really hire you that way. <laughs> you know, they hire people for runs at a time to work with. I, I'd also want to write my own stories. And, you know, you, you can't walk into, you can do a lot of things at Marvel and DC. I know a lot of people over there. I know Chris Fonda Carl, who's head of creative services. They're wonderful people to work with as a creative, but they're not going to let you walk in there and just tell them what you're going to do. And that's kind of what I do uh, with my comics, you know, within reason. It's not like I walk into a meeting with the guys at World War Three Illustrated and go, here it is. See it in six months. You know, <laughs> if, if anything, they actually do a, a tremendous amount of what I think is really supportive incubation. But that's what I would say. I mean, that's a mistake I didn't make that I could have made. I really did decide early on that I had stories to tell and that if someone else wasn't going to publish them, I would have to find the places where they would get published and create them my way. And in that way, my work has an uncompromising quality that to me is quite satisfying now. So. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music is Trap One by Ben Finan on B-Fine Media and is a Soundboard podcast exclusive. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.